Welcome to Single Malt History with Gareth Russell, pouring out your serving of pure, distilled, intoxicating, and occasionally delicious history. Hello and welcome to Single Malt History with me, Gareth Russell, where I'm happy to be joined by historian Dr. Nicholas Morton, Associate Professor at Nottingham Trent University, who is with us to discuss his new book, The Mongol Storm, Making and Breaking Empires in the Medieval Near East. Dr. Morton, welcome to Single Malt History and thank you for joining us. Thank you. Nice to be on the show. Well, to begin at the beginning, for those who might not be aware of its history or perhaps don't have a very clear idea of it, what was the Mongol Empire and what specific era in its history are you writing about in the Mongol Storm? Okay, so the Mongol Empire, it began uh, many years before the period that my book covers, in fact, with the life of someone called Temujin. And Temujin, over time, built up a large following on the Mongolian steppe, conquering various neighboring peoples, and in 1206, taking the title Chinggis Khan, or in the West often referred to as Genghis Khan. And after this, Chinggis Khan then began to conquer surrounding territories like parts of northern China and various other territories on the ed edges of the steppe region until he had created an enormous empire covering much of Central Asia and northern China. But he went beyond that because after 1218, he began to conquer parts of Persia and ultimately the Middle East. And then in the years after his death in the 1220s, his successors then went on to conquer a vast span of territory, which at its height would extend from the Pacific seaboard in the east, from Southeast Asia, and then all the way across to Damascus in Syria and the borders of Hungary and Poland um, to the northwest. So it's a simply enormous empire. But my book and my interest is really in the period right at the end of Chinggis Khan's life, but then particularly in the, over, the, as, over the reigns of his successors, looking at the initial rise of the Mongol Empire, but also just the time where it began to tip into decline as well. Well, the Mongols have a, a centuries-long reputation as conquerors, which, as you say, began in their lifetime. Yeah. Early in the Mongol storm, you quote a Russian account, the Chronicle of Novgorod, which describes the Mongols, or the Tartars as they call them, as an invading force sent for our sins, which presents them as an empire of such impact that it felt like divine retribution. The Mongol storm does present the Mongols as fearsome warriors. To what extent do you think the Mongols deserve that being the core of their modern reputation? Sure. So, I mean, to pick up on the first point, it's an interesting phenomenon, which is that when you look at the reactions of societies from multiple religions, they, they often interpret the Mongols in the same way. Because, of course, they're having to come to terms with the fact that their society is either in th under threat or has been entirely conquered. So how do you deal with that? How do you explain that? How do you rationalize that in terms of your worldview, in terms of your religious faith, and in terms of where your life and the life of your people is going? And it is interesting that a lot of people saw the Mongols 
as being some form of divine retribution. We have sinned. We have done something wrong. The Mongols are our punishment. And that sounds incredibly negative. It has got a significant um, silver lining to it in the sense that it does leave space for hope. The hope being that if people can reform their behavior, perhaps the future will look better. But it is interesting that so many societies adopt that kind of response to the Mongols' arrival. But you mentioned also the Mongols' reputation as fearsome warriors, and they were indeed very effective warriors. And many, many peoples across Eurasia and elsewhere lived in fear of the day that um, they would cross the border and invade. And there's quite an interesting story. It's a little, it sounds a little bit random to begin with, but the story is about the fishing fleet in the English town of Great Yarmouth. Because in one year, in the 1240s, they landed a bumper catch of herring. Well, good for them. And they were very <laughs> excited about this because they thought, well, we can sell all this herring. We'll make a nice surplus and then we'll be able to, I don't know, uh, invest that money in whatever we want to spend it on. But their plans went awry because they were used to selling that herring catch to merchants operating out of the Baltic, uh, the Baltic region. But the merchants were so afraid of the danger of a Mongol invasion, even though one didn't take place into their lands, that they didn't feel that they could leave their homes. And so they weren't able to buy the herring, as the people of Great Yarmouth had to sit down and eat their herring. Now, <laughs> I offer this as an example, really. This is the effect of the fear generated by the Mongol invasions. Even those who hadn't been invaded dramatically changed their lifestyle because of that fear. And so there is a great deal of fear, and it becomes a very important weapon of war. And the Mongols were very effective warriors, and of course that goes a long way to explaining how they could conquer so much so quickly. And just to do a little comparison, I mean, we talk about people like Julius Caesar, perhaps, as being an effective conqueror, and he did expand the, the Roman Empire quite a lot. And the Crusaders, I mean, whatever you think of them, they did conquer a fair amount of territory in the Middle East, a sort of coastal slither of land from Antioch in the north, I guess, a little bit inland, and then down to Jerusalem in the south. And yet these conquerors, who are well known as effective conquerors, their military exploits pale into insignificance compared to the sheer scope of territory conquered by the Mongols. It's a completely different, it's not just a different it's not just one's bigger than the other. It's a different ballpark. The Mongols are conquering 10, 100 times more territory than other conquerors who are generally reputed to have been a very effective warriors. And that warrants a fair amount of attention. Well, you say in the conclusion something of the book which I find quite beautiful. This book was not researched or written with the intent to offer any moral or philosophical lesson. The past, for its own sake, was and is its primary concern. You then note, of course, that while it should not be the primary point of a historical account, there will be lessons that can be taken. The Mongol storm begins its narrative in land which is today part of Kazakhstan, but was in 1218 when the Mongol storm begins, in the northern territories of the Khwarazmian Empire, an enormous empire covering much of what is today Afghanistan, Iran, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan and Uzbekistan, that lasted roughly from the 11th to the 13th centuries. In 1218, the Khwarazmian Empire's ruler, Sultan Muhammad, made a fatal mistake when he ordered the murder of several captured Mongol merchants 
one of whom disastrously for the sultan escaped. And the execution of the other merchants sparked a diplomatic crisis that I felt as a reader gave us a perfect entry into the world of the Mongol Empire. What drew you to that event in 1218 as the right place to start your book? And can you tell us a little bit about that incident and its consequences? Yeah, sure. So, and there's two points there. Just to go back to my initial intention for the book, I mean, it's what I wanted to do is to write a book about Middle Eastern history, about various different people groups and cultures, to write a book about different religions and how they interact, and about themes like conquest and overthrow and religious warfare. And these are all very sensitive topics, but what I really did want to try and achieve was I, I didn't want to write a book that pushed a line or argued a perspective. I wanted to be as holistic as possible. And so my intention with writing this book was to explore this phenomenon of the Mongol invasions and the enormous convulsions it brought about. But I didn't just want to explore one perspective, and I didn't just want to explore the Mongols' perspective. I wanted to explore everyone's perspective, including the Mongols. Because I think that when you've got so many cultures and peoples in close proximity, it's so important to understand and really make a genuine effort to get to grips with what different people are thinking and how they're acting. Because often, once you've understood that, it becomes clearer how the various peoples and religions are interacting with each other. But about the um, specific event in 1218, so by 1218, uh, Chinggis Khan's empire is expanding very, very rapidly indeed. And he's conquered not just the Mongol uh, re Mongolia region itself, but way beyond it as well. And there is this empire to the southwest called the Khwarazmian Empire. And the Khwarazmian Empire encompasses much of Persia, that's modern-day Iran, as well as several surrounding areas as well. And he doesn't just invade. Something happens. And it's not quite clear what, but what we do know goes something like this. And that is that in 1218, a group of Mongol merchants arrived at the border town on the northern borders of the Khwarazmian Empire called Atra. And this is a big um, emporium. It's a major waypoint on the Silk Road crossing Eurasia and ultimately going towards China and elsewhere. And these merchants arise, uh, these merchants arrive and they begin to conduct their trade. And then, for reasons that aren't quite clear, they're then all arrested. And the governor of the of Utra then writes to the Sultan of the Khwarazmian Empire and says, what do I do with these merchants who I've arrested? And the message comes back, and the message is very clear. He's to execute all of them. But in Alchuk, the city governor, he doesn't do his job very thoroughly because there is a survivor. And a survivor makes it back to Chinggis Khan, who is naturally incensed. And then he advances on Utra, and this then begins his invasion into the Khwarazmian Empire, which in turn will then become an invasion in later years of the Middle East as a whole. But all sorts of questions remain about this incident. Were Chinggis Khan's merchants really just interested in trade, or did they have an ulterior motive? Why were they arrested? 
what was really going on behind this? And why did the Sultan give the very um, notable guidance to his subordinate to execute all the Mongol merchants? We don't have clear answers to these questions. And so it's very natural to suspect there may be more at stake here than might meet the eye, but we don't really know. But what we do know is the merchants arrived, the merchants were executed, the Mongols invaded soon afterwards. The Mongols um, originally were a steppe nomadic people, and their more distant roots lay in the Siberian forests of the north. And so the main point to make is they're coming at um, ideas of rule and governance in very different ways to, say, the agricultural peoples of the Middle East or Western Christendom or China or elsewhere. And their leadership structures reflect that. Um, in terms of Chinggis Khan, he is striking not just because he didn't necessarily reflect the norms of his own society because he changed them significantly, but he also created the, an empire bigger than was any other empire of this era. And so here too, there are many differences. But in terms of his personal leadership, what he did was to weld together a confederation of nomadic peoples, not welding them together by consent, but by conquest. Often he would kill the elites of a society that he had overthrown and then forcibly enroll their rank and file and families into his own people. So with every victory, his own forces get larger. And what's interesting is that with every victory, because he can enroll all the various peoples he's conquered into his army, into his own people, he gets stronger and bigger with every single conquest. But the nature of leadership is different too, because a key aspect to Mongol leadership is the notion, it's not quite clear if it, it sort of crystallized under Chinggis Khan or if it came later, but it is a notion that the Mongol leaders have a right in fact, a spiritually derived mandate to rule the entire planet. Now, that's going to give leadership a very different flavor. And that's an idea that's taken incredibly seriously. And so the imperial family within the Mongol dynasty, it has a sort of sacred resonance to it because it has that mission, which is then the duty of the Mongol people as a whole to execute on their behalf. I was fascinated by the role played by Mongol elite women in the wars and the diplomacy of the empire. One contemporary who you quote in chapter three of the Mongol Storm said, it is these women who rule over both kingdom and household, who buy and sell, who are ferocious and warlike. For our listeners, Nick, what was the role of Mongol elite women? Sure. It's, it's very interesting because on one hand, Mongol elite men have multiple wives and then an even larger number of concubines. And so that naturally contextualizes the experience of elite women um, from this period. But within that, particularly that the leading wives or leading wife within a Mongol household has enormous power. And there's a very clear division of labor. The man fights, the man conducts campaign, the military side of matters. Although having said that, some Mongol women fought as well. But it's more typical for Mongol women to manage the encampment. And that may not sound like a particularly important role to put like that. But when I say encampment, 
what you should visualize is an entire civilization on the move. Mongol civilizations were cart societies. They had thousands of carts with their tents and goods in the back of these carts. And when I say carts, I don't just mean sort of a small handful, but a major Mongol leader would probably have a following with thousands, possibly tens of thousands of carts, and then beyond that, millions of animals brought along because they're their herds, part of their civilization. And so the role of managing that encampment, tens of thousands of people, millions of animals, all these carts, the the logistics of that, making sure the animals are all fed and all the rest of it, these are very significant feats of organization. And it's the role of elite women to manage that enormous logistical challenge. And in other contexts, women also play a very prominent role. They're expected to act as advisors to their husbands, but they're also expected to receive ambassadors from other cultures. In addition, when the current ruler dies, it's often that ruler's widow who then acts as the arbitrator of the succession, managing the question of who's going to be the next um, Mongol Khan, who's going to rule next, and all the various controversies and infighting that surrounds that particular decision. So they play a very, very important role in Mongol society in a number of respects, but it is one defined by sort of customary um, thinking. There is a, a cultural understanding that this is the role of women and this is the role of men. Well, the Mongol armies would spare cities that surrendered to them, but there are varying degrees of brutality used against those who did not submit. It seems, at least to me, that the level of punishment scaled up and down with how much resistance had been put up against the empire before defeat or surrender. But in some cases, the Mongols would not only order the deaths of every person in a conquered vicinity, but every living thing. I'm thinking of an incident, a particular incident that occurred in 1221 on the orders of Chinggis Khan after the death of his grandson. Yes, the Mongols have a very distinctive approach to um, violence and warfare. And this can be traced back to their core beliefs. So the Mongols believe that they have a right to rule the entire planet and every single human being on that planet. And the way they treat people rather depends on the speed with which that people acknowledges what is to the Mongols at least a basic truth. And so, for example, some peoples, they actually choose to acknowledge Mongol overlordship early. And so, for example, there's a kingdom in Silesia, and that's of where the East Mediterranean coast turns west fairly abruptly into the southern coast of what would be modern-day Turkey. So Silesia is just on the, on the corner there. They decide to submit to the Mongols long before the Mongols have got anywhere near. And the Mongols appreciate that because the Mongols accept that as evidence that the Silesian Armenians have accepted that truth. And so they're treated very, very leniently. In fact, they're, treated, they're given a sort of a prestige place in the Mongol Empire because they are deemed to have understood. But other societies had to be invaded before they submitted. Other societies were invaded and then resisted to the last defender. And so the greater the defense, the greater the resistance, 
the more they are deemed to be acting in defiance of the Mongols' worldview, of the Mongols' right to rule the planet. And therefore, the level of violence meted out against that people will be commensurately higher. And the example you gave, where a member of the imperial family is killed in battle, that would have been interpreted as a fundamental denial of the Mongols' right to rule the planet, and therefore absolutely unacceptable, and therefore deserving, in the Mongols' eyes at least, of the highest possible level of retribution. And so really, it's these are the weighing scales against which people are measured, and against which the level of violence to be implemented are decided. So how you've you've touched on it, and I it was something I was so unaware of before I read the book. The Mongols' religious beliefs, this mandate to rule the world and the concept of eternal heaven, what was it? Okay. So yeah, the Mongols exist in a the Mongols have predominantly a shamanistic worldview and religion, although having said that very early on, they conquered various Buddhist, Christian, and indeed Islamic peoples as well, all of which went into sort of the mix of faiths within the Mongol Empire. But fundamentally, the Mongols uh, were shamanistic in their origins. And so they see a spiritually infused landscape. And so there are spirits in the streams that have to be um, appeased. And there's a particular resonance, spiritual significance to a particular mountain or area of hill country. And so it's a, the landscape itself is sort of teeming with spiritual implications and um, presences. And the, so the Mongols see the world in this way. And this is the world um, that they encounter, uh, which intersects with their notion of the eternal heaven, Tengri, the eternal sky that has given them this mandate to rule the entire planet. Now, what's interesting about that particular mandate is the way it shapes their approach towards everyone else, towards everyone they conquer. Because despite the fact the Mongols could be very violent in their invasions, once they had secured control, they could be very demanding overlords with very high requirements for taxation. But at the same time, they do practice a form of religious tolerance. And the way this tolerance seems to work goes something like this. The Mongols accept that the various religions present within their empire all have religious and spiritual power. They've all got that they've all got some degree of spiritual power, whatever form that may take. And so as a result, when the Mongols conquer these areas, what they want is not to crush other religions. What they want to do is to ensure that the religious leaders of those religions channel their spiritual power for the health and prosperity of the imperial family, the exp expansion and victory of the Mongol people, and things of that ilk. And so it's very much a situation where religions are seen as resources to be tapped rather than rival faiths to be crushed. 
And what's interesting is that this means that the areas the Mongols conquer, including much of the Middle East, they suddenly find that all the various religions that previously existed in a hierarchy with one religion ruling another, that's all been wiped away. And now all these religions had to contemplate one another on an equal basis. Now, historians have praised this as a very tolerant approach, perhaps even a prototype for modern concepts of tolerance. But I've always felt that went a little bit too far because, of course, yes, all these conquered faiths are being treated equally, but they're all equally um, subservient and required to be of use to the Mongols' broader and central sense of purpose, which is their own mission to conquer the world. So it's not quite the same thing. It's it should be understood within the context of the Mongols' own worldview and beliefs, rather than sort of shoehorned into our own modern-day um, modern concepts of tolerance. What was life generally, and I'm aware, Nick, this is a very, very broad question, uh -huh, uh, particularly yeah. in an empire of this size, but what was life like for the subjugated peoples of the Mongol Empire? Sure. So, yeah, the basic question is sort of how were they treated? But and as I've mentioned, the Mongols were could be very aggressive conquerors. But once that conquest had taken place, it's in every ruler's interest to ensure the survival of their tax base. And the Mongols have no interest in wiping everyone out or something like that. They, they want the people to be there so that they can farm the lands, produce goods that they can make use of, and pay tax. And so the Mongol taxes were often very heavy particularly for tributary states, but nonetheless, the people survived, the people carried on. Putting that to one side, though, the Mongols do various other things that would have changed people's lives in more subtle ways. For a start, the Mongols were interested in trade and economics. The Mongols were enthusiastic um, traders, and they went to great lengths to make sure that merchants were supported in their empire, because, of course, it's in their interest to do so. And just to give you um, a story about how this operated, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about owls, if that's all right. Uh, always. <laughs> Good. <laughs> uh, and the story goes like this. Before the Mongols embarked on their conquests, uh, the legend goes that they were surrounded by mountains and they couldn't escape from those mountains and so they couldn't embark on their conquests. And the legend reports there was only one way out through that mountain chain but that, that single pass in the mountains simply couldn't be used because there was a ruined fortress that was possessed of evil spirits, as so no one would go that way. And so the years went by and the Mongols couldn't embark on their walls of expansion until on one occasion, a warrior was out with his hounds chasing a hare. And he rather sort of lost track of where he was. And the hare ran into the castle, the ruined castle, and the hounds ran after it. And the warrior was so intent on the chase that in he went into the ruined castle. And then suddenly he realized where he was. And he was terrified. Oh, I'm in the, in the fortress where the evil spirits live. Until he suddenly saw an owl, which gave an owl call. And he realized that the sounds from the fortress that previously had been interpreted as evil spirits were, in fact, just an owl call. So that was the moment he realized that the pass is safe. The Mongols can embark on the conquest of the planet. And so therefore, they see the owl as being a spiritual messenger, an 
sense to encourage them and lead them in their conquests. And so, and just 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 to pause briefly, I am getting somewhere with this. Um, no, do you, uh, wherever you're going, I am thoroughly enjoying it. <laughs> That's good. Um, so, as a, what the Mongol um, warriors and leaders did was to wear owl feathers in their hats as a sort of symbol of this story. If suddenly you've got a Mongol empire which has conquered tens of empires across Eurasia and has liquidated the wealth from all those empires, that means the Mongols can afford literally whatever they want. If it can be sold and they want it, they'll get it in any quantity. And it turns out they want owl feathers in industrial quantities. As this then leads to a continent-wide cull of owls, as merchants get hold of the idea that suddenly owl feathers are desirable. Owl feathers are what needs to be sold and that they command an enormous price. And so as a result, merchants begin to, to travel to the Mongol court, bringing owl feathers. And anything else the Mongols want gets brought in huge quantities. Pearls from the Indian Ocean, textiles, particularly silks. And so this is the point. The economic structure of Eurasia begins to centralize itself around the Mongols' big camp cities, and the commodities that are being traded begin to change. And they begin to change to whatever the Mongols want, because they're the ones doing the spending. And this too will affect people's lives because suddenly they realize that this is now what economics looks like. If you want to trade in something, it has to be what the Mongols want. If you want to manufacture something, it has to be what the Mongols want. And so at a more subtle and economic level, that then defines people's lives and existence. And it goes into other areas of existence too. Um, for a start, you might think that if the Mongols have conquered huge areas of territory and subjugated millions of people and killed um, thousands and burnt cities, you might think that these areas would be ripe for rebellion, but they weren't. Not in the early years. Um, in my experience, people do not rebel against empires when they are all powerful. Rebellions nearly always occur when rebellion is plausible. And it's not plausible. It's simply not going to happen in the early years. And so people have to handle their conquerors in different ways. And the way they handle them is to do exactly the opposite, charm offensives. If you can't beat them, make friends with them. And so you get missionaries, community leaders, all sorts of agents from societies across the Mongol Empire arriving at the Mongols' great encampment cities and trying to make themselves useful. Because what they're after is to receive concessions for their community to get themselves advantageously placed to get their quarrels and disputes settled in their favor. And of course, the all-time number one, which would be to try and convince a Mongol leader to convert to their own religion, at which point it would be hoped that Mongol leader would then champion that faith's interests. So it's interesting. The intensity of the conquest doesn't lead to resistance. It leads to an enormous wave of support for the Mongol Empire, because that's the only way they can be handled. It's only when the Mongol Empire begins to decline, you begin to get rebellions, because it's only at that point rebellions become plausible.
Well, to get to the point of uh, where these rebellions become plausible, by the 1240s, it initially seems that Mongol imperialism is at its zenith. As she just said, it, it seems untouchable in terms of rebellion. But it's at this moment, as often happens throughout history, just after the zenith, the cracks begin to appear. What caused those first serious cracks in the Mongol Empire? Okay, so when Chinggis Khan died, uh, he had four four main sons who were sort of deemed to be the, sort of the leading members of his family, and each of those sons went on to found dynasties. And those dynasties were each assigned something called an ulu. And an ulu is an area of jurisdiction, an area of interest. It's not an independent country. It's an area where their family has a claim. And it's a particularly uncomfortable scenario because, of course, on one hand, you have this family saying, well, look, this is our ulu. We, we have jurisdiction here. But you've also got the officers of the great Khan and the central administration of the Mongol Empire trying to run it as well. And there's an obvious line of tension there. But over time, these leading dynasties, which ultimately descend from Genghis Khan's sons, these leading dynasties start to assert their independence. They start to quarrel. They start to go their separate ways. And this doesn't happen overnight, but it sort of creeps up on the Mongol Empire until it breaks into the open at the end of the 1250s in particular. And it's then that you get big wars between the leading Mongol dynasties, and those wars harden the fragmentation lines between them. And that then leads to um, the creation of what are basically sub-empires within the greater ge geography of the Mongol Empire, and they will steadily go their own way. Linked to that is the fact that in many areas, the different areas of the Mongol Empire begins to take on the culture and religion, often of local people, but that too means that they begin to sort of become distinct from one another, and they're not quite as homogenous as they once were. And so the Mongols in China adopt Buddhism and begin to adopt Chinese culture in many respects. The Mongols in the Middle East, many of them adopt Islam and adopt local cultures and practices. They go, they go their own way in some respects over time. Well, I think many readers, myself included, will be surprised by the, the, the extent of the interactions between the Mongol Empire and other political entities, such as the Crusader states and the Byzantine Empire. In your book, The Mongol Storm, we see figures like King Louis IX, France's Saint King, Byzantium's Emperor Michael VIII appear on the pages. There is a prevailing misconception, I think, of the Mongol Empire being one with almost no sustained excuse me, contact with Western or at least further Western powers. Perhaps that misconception is something birthed at least in part by the popular legend of the exceptionalism of Marco Polo. But the idea that the, that the Mongol Empire was not interacting with um, European or Near Eastern powers is not correct at all, is it? No, the Mongols are very closely linked to many of these, um, to many Middle Eastern, many um, Western European powers at this time. There's fabulous work on this by Peter Jackson, who's written extensively on the subject. But it, the interest goes two ways. So take Western Christendom as the example. Uh, on one hand, you have lots of agents and missionaries from Christendom's leaders, and particularly the papacy, going out to the Mongols. Uh, 
the, the questions they're carrying are basically very simple. Who are these people? Where do they come from? What do they want? And how can they be stopped? Um, there's also a fair amount of interest in the idea of can they be converted to Christianity, but that doesn't happen. So all these agents go out to the Mongol Empire trying to better understand them. The Mongols themselves do briefly invade the eastern borders of Western Christendom, although it is only brief. But there's a sort of running skirmish uh, or running skirmishes after that for many years. But it's it really shapes Western Christendom in major ways. And the the fear of a full-scale invasion that runs and runs for decades. And it haunts the policies of many rulers who, who think it's only a matter of time before the Mongols do in fact invade. And they can come very close. Um, there is an initial invasion into Hungary and Poland in the 1240s, but there's ongoing fears of, a, of further invasions later on. Mongols, for their part, they're interested in Western Christendom, partly because they want to conquer it. But in later years, as it becomes clear that the Mongol invasions are grinding to a halt, as it becomes clear that the Mongols are encountering very significant resistance, particularly in the Middle East from the Mamluk Empire, the Mongols actually begin to send envoys to Western Christendom asking for joint offensives against their opponents in the Middle East. And so the Mongols switch from demanding a submission of Western Christendom to actually trying to look at ways of working collaboratively, even if in practice that never really happens. So by the, as you've mentioned, by the 14th century, the Mongol Empire does seem to be hurtling through its decline. With the perspective of hindsight, what would you say the empire's legacy was, Nick, be it culturally, militarily, intellectually, spiritually? It's simply huge. The Mongols have an impact across so many sectors of life, not just in the areas they've conquered, although obviously there too, but also in the wider world. So in the areas they conquer, they overthrow so many different societies. So in the Middle East, that includes the Ayyubid Empire, the Anatolian Seljuks, the Zangid Empire, the Abbasid Caliphate in Baghdad, the Khwarazmian Empire. They subjugate Georgia and Greater Armenia. The list could go on. The fundamental configuration of politics in the region changes, and indeed it's people running from the Mongols or trying to resist the Mongols that set up the empires that will follow in later centuries including the Mamluk Empire and the Ottoman Empire. So the Mongols reconfigure, not necessarily intentionally, the, in, you know, the entire political landscape. I've just given the Middle East as an example. I could talk about any other region as well. And that impacts the culture and the demography because the composition of the population changes because many Mongols arrive in the Middle East and stay and they intermarry and that too changes the culture and the, the landscape of the, the area. But the area, the, the aspect I particularly want to focus on is the whole question of horizons. Because before the Mongol conquests, there are lots of people across Eurasia who've never heard of each other. They may have picked up distant rumors about strange places. I mean, that's, that's people, whether that's from China or the Muslim world or Western Christendom or elsewhere, but they don't know that much about it. But with the rise of the Mongols, and the dispatch of agents and ambassadors and missionaries all the way across the continent, suddenly people are returning home with news about strange and 
far off places, places even as distant and obscure as Western Christendom, for example, or indeed any other part of the world, depending on your perspective. And so we have plenty of accounts of people traveling from one area or another and returning home saying, I've encountered this incredible civilization or string of civilizations. So people's horizons are being driven back very rapidly due to the sheer size of the Mongol Empire. Another dimension that I think warrants attention here is technology. And that is because the Mongol Empire is so vast and because it incorporates the various regions it's conquered into one huge connected whole, or at least for a time it does, that means technologies from one area move to another. And that's particularly significant for China because there's plenty of technologies in China that begin to disseminate across Eurasia uh, in late, over the later years of the Mongol Empire. And so it's notable it's in the mid-13th century that gunpowder reaches the Mediterranean. And that's going to change everything. The Muslim world adopts gunpowder. The Byzantine Empire adopts gunpowder. Western Christendom adopts gunpowder. And that development doesn't just affect the face of warfare. It will affect so many trends and changes at every possible level of society in all those different cultures. And that's brought about, inadvertently at least, by the Mongols. Another example would be paper money. The Mongols encounter paper money in China. They see the value of it, so they try and implement it in the Middle East. But it's a complete failure because in the Middle East, there's no concept of using paper to replace actual metal coinage. And so the shopkeepers won't use it. But it is interesting to see how these technologies and ideas are moving from one region to another. Another rather different example of that would be disease. Because, of course, when you create a huge empire, that means that diseases can move much more easily from one end to another. And so it's in the early to mid 14th century. Although an argument has been made for the 13th century as well, that the Black Death begins to expand across Eurasia. And this is very contested among historians, but some historians at least argue the trading networks and the military roads of the Mongol Empire that inadvertently saw the enormous expansion of the Black Death during this era. It is a fascinating topic. And I wanted to, I mean, I've said to you before, we came on air, Nick, I really sincerely enjoyed the book. Dr. Nicholas Morton, thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure. My guest has been Dr. Nicholas Morton, author of the new book, which is out now, The Mongol Storm, Making and Breaking Empires in the Medieval Near East. I've been Gareth Russell. Thank you and take care. Mm-hmm.